Volume 2, Part 18 of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. Histories, Volume 2, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by A. D. Godley. Volume 2, Part 18 While still in the city, the generals first sent to Sparta the herald Philippides, an Athenian and a long-distance runner, who made that his calling. As Philippides himself said when he brought the message to the Athenians, when he was in the Parthenian mountain above Tegea, he encountered Pan. Pan called out Philippides' name, and bade him ask the Athenians why they paid him no attention, though he was of good will to the Athenians, had often been of service to them, and would be in the future. The Athenians believed that these things were true, and when they became prosperous they established a sacred precinct of Pan beneath the Acropolis. Ever since that message, they propitiate him with annual sacrifices and a torch-race. This Philippides was in Sparta on the day after leaving the city of Athens, that time when he was sent by the generals, and said that Pan had appeared to him. He came to the magistrates and said, Lacedaemonians, the Athenians ask you to come to their aid, and not allow the most ancient city among the Hellenes to fall into slavery at the hands of the foreigners. Even now Eretria has been enslaved, and Hellas has become weaker by an important city. He told them what he had been ordered to say, and they resolved to send help to the Athenians, but they could not do this immediately, for they were unwilling to break the law. It was the ninth day of the rising month, and they said that on the ninth they could not go out to war until the moon's circle was full. So they waited for the full moon, while the foreigners were guided to Marathon by Hippias, son of Pisistratus. The previous night Hippias had a dream in which he slept with his mother. He supposed from the dream that he would return from exile to Athens, recover his rule, and end his days an old man in his own country. Thus he reckoned from the dream. Then, as guide, he unloaded the slaves from Eretria onto the island of the Styrians called Egilia, and brought to anchor the ships that had put ashore at Marathon, then marshalled the foreigners who had disembarked onto land. As he was tending to this, he happened to sneeze and cough more violently than usual. Since he was an elderly man, most of his teeth were loose, and he lost one of them by the force of his cough. It fell into the sand, and he expended much effort in looking for it, but the tooth could not be found. He groaned aloud, and said to those standing by him, This land is not ours, and we will not be able to subdue it. My tooth holds whatever share of it was mine. Hippias supposed that the dream had in this way come true. As the Athenians were marshalled in the precinct of Heracles, the Plataeans came to help them in full force. The Plataeans had put themselves under the protection of the Athenians, and the Athenians had undergone many labours on their behalf. This is how they did it. 
When the Plataeans were pressed by the Thebans, they first tried to put themselves under the protection of Cleomenes, son of Anaxandrides, and the Lacedaemonians, who happened to be there. But they did not accept them, saying, We live too far away, and our help would be cold comfort to you. You could be enslaved many times over before any of us heard about it. We advise you to put yourselves under the protection of the Athenians, since they are your neighbours, and not bad men at giving help. The Lacedaemonians gave this advice not so much out of goodwill toward the Plataeans as wishing to cause trouble for the Athenians with the Boeotians. So the Lacedaemonians gave this advice to the Plataeans, who did not disobey it. When the Athenians were making sacrifices to the twelve gods, they sat at the altar as suppliants and put themselves under protection. When the Thebans heard this, they marched against the Plataeans, but the Athenians came to their aid. As they were about to join battle, the Corinthians, who happened to be there, prevented them and brought about a reconciliation. Since both sides desired them to arbitrate, they fixed the boundaries of the country on condition that the Thebans leave alone those Boeotians who were unwilling to be enrolled as Boeotian. After rendering this decision, the Corinthians departed. The Boeotians attacked the Athenians as they were leaving, but were defeated in battle. The Athenians went beyond the boundaries the Corinthians had made for the Plataeans, fixing the Asopus River as the boundary for the Thebans in the direction of Plataea and Hisii. So the Plataeans had put themselves under the protection of the Athenians in the aforesaid manner, and now came to help at Marathon. The Athenian generals were of divided opinion, some advocating not fighting because they were too few to attack the army of the Medes, others, including Miltiades, advocating fighting. Thus they were at odds, and the inferior plan prevailed. An eleventh man had a vote, chosen by lot to be Polymarch of Athens, and by ancient custom the Athenians had made his vote of equal weight with the generals. Callimachus of Aphidne was Polymarch at this time. Miltiades approached him and said, Callimachus, it is now in your hands to enslave Athens or make her free, and thereby leave behind for all posterity a memorial such as not even Harmodius and Aristogiton left. Now the Athenians have come to their greatest danger since they first came into being, and, if we surrender, it is clear what we will suffer when handed over to Hippias. But if the city prevails, it will take first place among Hellenic cities. I will tell you how this can happen, and how the deciding voice on these matters has devolved upon you. The ten generals are of divided opinion, some urging to attack, others urging not to. If we do not attack now, I expect that great strife will fall upon and shake the spirit of the Athenians, leading them to Medes. But if we attack now, before anything unsound corrupts the Athenians, we can win the battle, if the gods are fair. All this concerns and depends on you in this way. If you vote with me, your country will be free and your city the first in Hellas. But if you side with those eager to avoid battle, 
you will have the opposite to all the good things I enumerated. By saying this, Miltiades won over Callimachus. The polemarch's vote was counted in, and the decision to attack was resolved upon. Thereafter the generals who had voted to fight turned the presidency over to Miltiades as each one's day came in turn. He accepted the office, but did not make an attack until it was his own day to preside. When the presidency came round to him, he arrayed the Athenians for battle, with the polemarch Callimachus commanding the right wing, since it was then the Athenian custom for the polemarch to hold the right wing. He led, and the other tribes were numbered out in succession next to each other. The Plataeans were marshalled last, holding the left wing. Ever since that battle, when the Athenians are conducting sacrifices at the festivals every fourth year, the Athenian herald prays for good things for the Athenians and Plataeans together. As the Athenians were marshalled at Marathon, it happened that their line of battle was as long as the line of the Medes. The centre, where the line was weakest, was only a few ranks deep, but each wing was strong in numbers. When they had been set in order, and the sacrifices were favourable, the Athenians were sent forth, and charged the foreigners at a run. The space between the armies was no less than eight stadia. The Persians saw them running to attack, and prepared to receive them, thinking the Athenians absolutely crazy, since they saw how few of them there were, and that they ran up so fast without either cavalry or archers. So the foreigners imagined, but when the Athenians altogether fell upon the foreigners, they fought in a way worthy of record. These are the first Hellenes whom we know of to use running against the enemy. They are also the first to endure looking at Median dress and men wearing it, for up until then just hearing the name of the Medes caused the Hellenes to panic. They fought a long time at Marathon. In the centre of the line the foreigners prevailed where the Persians and Sasi were arrayed. The foreigners prevailed there, and broke through in pursuit inland, but on each wing the Athenians and Plataeans prevailed. In victory they let the routed foreigners flee, and brought the wings together to fight those who had broken through the centre. The Athenians prevailed, then followed the fleeing Persians, and struck them down. When they reached the sea, they demanded fire, and laid hold of the Persian ships. In this labour, Callimachus the polemarch was slain, a brave man, and of the generals, Stesileus, son of Thrasileus, died. Sinegyrus, son of Euphorion, fell there, his hand cut off with an axe as he grabbed a ship's figurehead. Many other famous Athenians also fell there. In this way the Athenians overpowered seven ships. The foreigners pushed off with the rest, picked up the Eretrian slaves from the island where they had left them, and sailed around Sunium, hoping to reach the city before the Athenians. There was an accusation at Athens that they devised this by a plan of the Alcmionidae, who were said to have arranged to hold up a shield as a signal once the Persians were in their ships. They sailed around Sunium, 
but the Athenians marched back to defend the city as fast as their feet could carry them, and got there ahead of the foreigners. Coming from the sacred precinct of Heracles in Marathon, they pitched camp in the sacred precinct of Heracles in Sinosarges. The foreigners lay at anchor off Phalerum, the Athenian naval port at that time. After riding anchor there, they sailed their ships back to Asia. In the battle at Marathon, about 6,400 men of the foreigners were killed, and 192 Athenians. That many fell on each side. The following marvel happened there. An Athenian, Epizelus, son of Cuphagoras, was fighting as a brave man in the battle, when he was deprived of his sight, though struck or hit nowhere on his body, and from that time on he spent the rest of his life in blindness. I have heard that he tells this story about his misfortune. He saw opposing him a tall armed man, whose beard overshadowed his shield, but the phantom passed him by, and killed the man next to him. I learned by inquiry that this is the story Epizelus tells. Datis journeyed with his army to Asia, and when he arrived at Mykonos he saw a vision in his sleep. What that vision was is not told, but as soon as day broke, Datis made a search of his ships. He found in a Phoenician ship a gilded image of Apollo, and asked where this plunder had been taken. Learning from what temple it had come, he sailed in his own ship to Delos. The Delians had now returned to their island, and Datis set the image in the temple, instructing the Delians to carry it away to Theban Delium, on the coast opposite Chalcis. Datis gave this order and sailed away, but the Delians never carried that statue away. Twenty years later the Thebans brought it to Delium by command of an oracle. When Datis and Artaphrenes reached Asia in their voyage, they carried the enslaved Eretrians inland to Susa. Before the Eretrians were taken captive, King Darius had been terribly angry with them for doing him unprovoked wrong, but when he saw them brought before him and subject to him, he did them no harm, but settled them in a domain of his own called Arderica in the Sicyon land. This place is two hundred and ten stadia distant from Susa, and forty from the well that is of three kinds. Asphalt and salt and oil are drawn from it in the following way. A windlass is used in the drawing, with half a skin tied to it in place of a bucket. This is dipped into the well, and then poured into a tank. Then what is drawn is poured into another tank, and goes three ways. The asphalt and the salt congeal immediately. The oil, which the Persians call radinacy, is dark and evil-smelling. There King Darius settled the Eretrians, and they dwelt in that place until my time, keeping their ancient language. Such was the fate of the Eretrians. After the full moon, two thousand Lacedaemonians came to Athens, making such great haste to reach it, that they were in Attica on the third day after leaving Sparta. Although they came too late for the battle, they desired to see the Medes, so they went to Marathon and saw them. Then they departed again, 
praising the Athenians and their achievement. It is a wonder to me, and I do not believe the story, that the Alcmeonidae would ever have agreed to hold up a shield as a sign for the Persians out of a desire to make Athens subject to foreigners and to Hippias, for it is plain to see that they were tyrant-haters as much as Callias, son of Phinippus and father of Hipponicus, or even more so. Callias was the only Athenian who dared to buy Pisistratus' possessions when they were put up for sale by the state after Pisistratus' banishment from Athens, and he devised other acts of bitter hatred against him. This Callias is worthy of all men's remembrance for many reasons. First, because he so excellently freed his country, as I have said. Second, for what he did at Olympia, where he won a horse-race and was second in a four-horse chariot after already winning a Pythian prize, and was the sinecure of all Hellas for the lavishness of his spending. And third, for his behaviour regarding his three daughters. When they were of marriageable age, he gave them a most splendid gift, and one very pleasant to them, promising that each would wed that man whom she chose for herself from all the Athenians. The Alcmeonidae were tyrant-haters as much as Callias, or not less so. Therefore I find it a strange and unbelievable accusation that they of all men should have held up a shield. At all times they shunned tyrants, and it was by their contrivance that the sons of Pisistratus were deposed from their tyranny. Thus in my judgment it was they who freed Athens much more than did Harmodius and Aristogiton. These only enraged the remaining sons of Pisistratus by killing Hipparchus, and did nothing to end the tyranny of the rest of them. But the Alcmeonidae plainly liberated their country, if they truly were the ones who persuaded the Pythian priestess to signify to the Lacedaemonians that they should free Athens, as I have previously shown. Perhaps out of some grudge against the Athenian people they betrayed their country, but there were no others at Athens more esteemed or more honoured than they, therefore plain reason forbids believing that they of all men could have held up the shield for any such cause. A shield was held up, this cannot be denied, for it happened. But who did it, I do not know, and I can say no further. The Alcmeonidae had been men of renown at Athens even in the old days, and from the time of Alcmeon and then Megacles their renown increased. When the Lydians from Sardis came from Croesus to the Delphic Oracle, Alcmeon, son of Megacles, worked with them and zealously aided them. When Croesus heard from the Lydians who visited the oracle of Alcmeon's benefits to him, he summoned Alcmeon to Sardis, and there made him a gift of as much gold as he could carry away at one time on his person. Considering the nature of the gift, Alcmeon planned and employed this device. He donned a wide tunic, leaving a deep fold in it, and put on the most spacious boots that he could find, then went into the treasury to which they led him. Falling upon a heap of gold dust, 
First he packed next to his legs as much gold as his boots would contain. Then he filled all the fold of his tunic with gold, and strewed the dust among the hair of his head, and took more of it into his mouth. When he came out of the treasury, hardly dragging the weight of his boots, he was like anything rather than a human being, with his mouth crammed full and all his body swollen. Croesus burst out laughing at the sight, and gave him all the gold he already had, and that much more again. Thus the family grew very rich. Alcmeon came to keep four-horse chariots, and one with them at Olympia. In the next generation, Cleisthenes, the tyrant of Sicyon, raised that house still higher, so that it grew much more famous in Hellas than it had formerly been. Cleisthenes, son of Aristonymus, son of Myron, son of Andreas, had one daughter, whose name was Agoristi. He desired to wed her to the best man he could find in Hellas. It was the time of the Olympian Games, and when he was victor there with a four-horse chariot, Cleisthenes made a proclamation that whichever Greek thought himself worthy to be his son-in-law should come on the sixtieth day from then or earlier to Sicyon, and Cleisthenes would make good his promise of marriage in a year from that sixtieth day. Then all the Greeks who were proud of themselves and their country came as suitors, and to that end Cleisthenes had them compete in running and wrestling contests. From Italy came Smindirides of Sybaris, son of Hippocrates, the most luxurious liver of his day, and Sybaris was then at the height of its prosperity, and Damasus of Cyrus, son of that Amiris who was called the Wise. These came from Italy, from the Ionian Gulf, Amphimnestus, son of Epistrophus, an Epidamnian. He was from the Ionian Gulf. From Aetolia came Meles, the brother of that Titormus, who surpassed all the Greeks in strength, and fled from the sight of men to the farthest parts of the Aetolian land. From the Peloponnese came Leocedes, son of Phidon, the tyrant of Argos, that Phidon who made weights and measures for the Peloponnesians, and acted more arrogantly than any other Greek. He drove out the Elean contest directors, and held the contests at Olympia himself. This man's son now came, and Amiantus, an Arcadian from Trapezus, son of Lycurgus, and an Azenian from the town of Pius, Laphanes, son of that Euphorian, who, as the Arcadian tale relates, gave lodging to the Dioscuri, and ever since kept open house for all men, and Onomastus from Elis, son of Aegeus. These came from the Peloponnese itself. From Athens, Megacles, son of that Alcmeon who visited Croesus, and also Hippoclides, son of Tysandrus, who surpassed the Athenians in wealth and looks. From Eretria, which at that time was prosperous, came Lysanias. He was the only man from Euboea. From Thessaly came Ascopad, Diactorides of Cranon, and from the Molossians, Alcon. These were the suitors. 
When they arrived on the appointed day, Cleisthenes first inquired the country and lineage of each. Then he kept them with him for a year, testing their manliness and temper and upbringing and manner of life. This he did by consorting with them alone and in company, putting the younger of them to contests of strength, but especially watching their demeanour at the common meal. For as long as he kept them with him, he did everything for them and entertained them with magnificence. The suitors that most pleased him were the ones who had come from Athens, and of these Hippoclides, son of Tysandrus, was judged foremost, both for his manliness and because in ancestry he was related to the Sipsilids of Corinth. When the appointed day came for the marriage feast, and for Cleisthenes' declaration of whom he had chosen out of them all, Cleisthenes sacrificed a hundred oxen, and gave a feast to the suitors and to the whole of Sicyon. After dinner the suitors vied with each other in music and in anecdotes for all to hear. As they sat late drinking, Hippoclides, now far outdoing the rest, ordered the flute-player to play him a dance-tune. The flute-player obeyed, and he began to dance. I suppose he pleased himself with his dancing, but Cleisthenes saw the whole business with much disfavour. Hippoclides then stopped for a while and ordered a table to be brought in. When the table arrived, he danced Laconian figures on it first, and then Attic. Last of all, he rested his head on the table and made gestures with his legs in the air. Now Cleisthenes at the first and the second bout of dancing could no more bear to think of Hippoclides as his son-in-law because of his dancing and his shamelessness, but he had held himself in check, not wanting to explode at Hippoclides. But when he saw him making gestures with his legs, he could no longer keep silence, and said, Son of Tysandrus, you have danced away your marriage. Hippoclides said in answer, It does not matter to Hippoclides. Since then this is proverbial. Then Cleisthenes bade them all be silent, and spoke to the company at large, Suitors, for my daughter's hand, I thank you one and all. If it were possible, I would grant each of you his wish, neither choosing out one to set him above another, nor disparaging the rest. But since I have but one maiden to plan for, and so cannot please all of you, to those of you whose suit is rejected, I make a gift of a talent of silver to each, for his desire to take a wife from my house, and for his sojourn away from his home. And to Megacles, son of Alcmeon, do I betroth my daughter Agoristi by the laws of the Athenians. Megacles accepted the betrothal, and Cleisthenes brought the marriage to pass. End of Volume 2, Part 18 Recording by Graham Redmond